Hi, I'm Fiona, CEO of Farmers for Climate Action. You're listening to the Over the Fence podcast, bringing you stories from farmers on the front lines of climate change and exploring issues at the intersection of climate and agriculture. Today, I'm talking to David Littleproud, the member for Maranoa in Queensland and leader of the Federal National Party. I'm chatting to David about his journey into politics, his vision for rural Australia and how he thinks we should go about tackling climate change. As always, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can get in touch with us via email or over social media. Our email is info at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, David. It's excellent to have you on and to find out a bit about you and what you're keen to see in regards to climate change. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, uh, unfortunately, stuck in Canberra, but uh, you can't help bad luck. <laughs> I was going to start out by asking you a bit about um, where you grew up. So you grew up on a farm, David. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I grew up in a little town called Chinchilla. We lived in town. Um, Dad grew up out on the farm. We had a mixed grazing operation, um, grain and cattle. Uh, He was a school teacher but went into state politics when I was about six or seven. Uh, And he actually was the state education minister in Queensland under the uh, Hearn Cooper governments and the environment minister under the Bullbidge government. And so, uh, obviously, we had um, had, a, had an operation that we'd live in town, but go out uh, during the during the after school and on weekends. Uh, so, really enjoyed that. Um, didn't enjoy the some of the work that came with it at times, but it was always good fun and learn a lot. Uh, it was obviously the family property, been in the family for over a hundred years, um, and and learned to love it. Unfortunately, uh, my mum and dad uh, have now sold it. Uh, my mum's got dementia, so they've moved into to get higher care uh, into Toowoomba. But um, it's always good to drive past the farm and Watercourse uh, is the name of the place. There's a Canningaga Creek runs through it and then the Broadacre is all Briglow country, beautiful black soil Briglow country. So um, fond memories as a, as a boy driving out on weekends to work on the farm and then come back into, into town to play sports. So pretty simple upbringing in Chinchilla. Uh, great little town, Chinchilla. I still see it as home. I don't live there at the moment, but that was that was sort of uh, where I grew up and what I call home. And do you have any particular memories of striking days on farm when you were a kid or things that happened? Yeah, I remember the uh, first one probably getting thrown off the pony, my pony Georgia. Uh, and probably deserved it. Wasn't doing much of a job holding on. Uh, but, you know, we used to, um, you know, Dad used to send uh, me and my brother out and we'd take some tordon and get rid of suckers and doing stuff and you just, you know, and then, you know, we were doing stuff that even he would have said um, he had land practices that he wasn't proud of. And then um, he actually followed uh, Peter Andrews and around some of that regen stuff but didn't like using the the you know the introduced species like using the natives and and understood about trying and really was keen to slow the the water down because we had a creek running through and and obviously boarding contours and just tried to really slow the water and hydrate the the ground more and, and around management of the of the herd in not flogging country so I sort of he, he sort of found that when I was probably about six or seven, he sort of remember him sort of changing a few things around. And as I remember, early days you'd sort of go out, and we used to burn scrub and and do all sorts of things. And I'd, I'd carry the torch on, and my brother would have the have the tomahawk, and we'd be getting the suckers, and then he sort of reworked it. So 
sort of that was the main thing. And, and actually, after that, i got to say things became a lot easier. You just go and muster cattle and uh, brand and, and do all the good stuff. So, um, yeah, that was sort of the main things, but it was just sort of being out there with Dad. And what prompted your dad to go into politics? Um, he lost his dad uh, when he was about 25 26 uh and he had a complication and and during those times i had death duties uh and basically my grandmother was left with a great big dirty death duty to the to the government um and dad sort of uh, didn't think much of that obviously and then joe jockey peterson came along and said he was going to get rid of them um, and so dad became, uh, you know, a convert and wanted, and in fact, we were always, my grandfather was a member of the country party. He was the deputy mayor of Chinchilla. Um, so we've always been in politics, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, dad, dad really, um, became involved in, in what was then the national party when, when, um, when Job Jockey Peterson got rid of death duties and promised to do it. And so that was the catalyst for him to get involved. But he was also, dad was very much about, and so was mum, uh, about, servant leadership about making sure he was the president of the local cricket club or the apex club or rotary or the footy club he used to coach the you know the juniors at rugby league so it was always about community and giving back um and so that was always important to him and, and then politics was probably just a means to probably to, to be able to have that influence to to make change for for the people he was representing so i i, I obviously i think i was about Five when he first went into state politics, um, and so I remember remember all those days um, of him being there. Some wild days, the end of the Jockey Peterson era. In fact, Dad was one of the ones um, that sort of uh, got Joe to retire. I actually answered the phone in the morning. Joe rang up um, to ask Dad to become a cabinet minister, and my dad refused. He said, "No, Joe, I think it's time because the Fitzgerald inquiry was." needed to happen things were swirling around he said i think it's time to go you've done a great job go out now and um i just remember listening to the phone call that didn't last long um but i admired dad for actually standing his ground and could see what was happening and said no we need we need a new start and that was pretty tough but so and you know i remember the Fitzgerald inquiry and all those things and they were yeah interesting times to live through and that and then saw dad and how he operates so got an interest of him as well but some really interesting times and does your dad leave a particular political legacy that he's proud of? Um, actually, interesting, one of the, uh, a couple of things, he was, when he was education minister, one of the things that um, my, my son, his grandson is now the beneficiary of is that um, he was one of the two ministers, the other was a fellow called Vince Lester, that created school-based apprenticeships. And Queensland was the first state to adopt it and to create it, and Dad and Vince Lester created those, and my son's only just taken up a school-based apprenticeship now um, as a diesel mechanic in Warwick. So uh, his grandfather created that model with Vince Lester, and it, it, then after Queensland adopted it, um, then the whole country fell in behind, and I think it's a it's a great legacy, that one in which he's, he's pretty proud of. I think the other thing was that um, he was happy to have stood up and stood strong when, you know, the, with the Bajelke, end of the Bajelke-Peterson era and the and the Fitzgerald inquiry. And, and, in fact, I think even Peter Beattie in one of his books has acknowledged that Dad and Bill Gunn were probably um, two of the people that sort of held firm and said that the integrity needed to be returned and that there needed to be some action. So, you know, he, um, he, he, was, pretty, he was pretty proud of those things. 
And did you have a particular idea of what you wanted to achieve in your career when you were at school, when you thought about the future? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily politics straight up. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do um, and I wasn't academically gifted. Uh, and so, in fact, I was in the last cabinet, I was the youngest and, and the only one without a university degree um, and that's I'm not ashamed of that. Um, I bought a lot of life experience. I, I, I sort of drifted after school. I was cotton chipping, um, tried to have a bit of a crack at uni but wasn't gifted enough to do it, so um, did a bit of cotton chipping and then uh, got employed by uh, National Australia Bank and I basically just moved around Western Queensland and, and got my education through them uh, and was lucky enough to get into the agricultural side of it uh, and, and that I really enjoyed for 20-odd for years. But I've got to say I'd probably... Just before I got into politics, I'd probably had enough. I'd been through drought and, you know, when you're an agri-manager and you're sitting there and you see some of the hardships and, you know, these people you're, you're emotionally invested in, um, they're not just clients. They become friends and family and, you know, sometimes you, gotta, you had to have some pretty tough conversations. Um, that, was, that was draining and after sort of 20 years, probably 20 years, yeah, I'd had enough. Um, and that wasn't the reason I went to politics. I'd always had an interest in it. And I've got to say, you know, people like Lawrence Springborg, who was a good friend of Dad's, he was in Parliament together and I'd always been a good friend of Lawrence. And Bruce Scott, my predecessor, who I'd known since I was a boy because he was the federal member for Maranoa and my dad was a state member within Maranoa. Um, they they encouraged me to have a go and I had an interest in them, yeah. I probably thought uh, originally I'd have a go at state politics but Bruce retired before Lawrence and Bruce said, mate, you should have a go at this, you'll enjoy federal politics and I'm sort of glad I, I did go federal rather than state, to be honest. Do you, do you have a particular, do you remember that particular moment where you thought, yes, I am actually going to do this? Um, no, it was sort of building, I, I don't think, I, I probably thought... Um, probably three or four years before um, pre-selections came up that, you know, I think this is something I want to have a go if the opportunity comes up. you got to understand politics is timing and opportunity. And, and, you know, Bruce had been there 26 years. Lawrence has been, was there 28 years in the end or whatever it might have been. Um, so, you know, I've been very lucky that the timing came up, the opportunity was there. Uh, so I, I'd been around politics long enough to know that that was you know, the, the basis of even first getting, getting to the first base. So, yeah, I, I sort of understood that, but I, I sort of could see the writing on the wall with Bruce and and, and Lawrence. And so, yeah, at that point I sort of reconciled in my head I, I wanted to do this. I thought it would be a good opportunity. But I wasn't, I've got to say, if it didn't come off, I hadn't won pre-selection. Um, I would have been obviously disappointed, but I would have been more disappointed had I not had the courage to put my hand up. Um, and I say that to anyone that I talk to about wanting to run for the Nationals is that don't wake up on um, the day after election day with regrets saying I should have run and I would have, could have, should have. You, there's no perfect time in life for politics, particularly there are burdens and, and sacrifices, particularly with family. So there is no perfect time. And, and if you're waiting for the perfect time, it'll never come. And the, the timing is about that timing of opportunity rather than when you're ready. It, it'll never come. So I was probably fortunate it was close enough to, for a time when it was good for me. But, um, yeah, I'm glad I did. That was probably the, the, the thing that I was most proud of, that even if I hadn't won the pre-selection, I was just glad I, I ran and I had no regrets. And I wasn't even the night before... Um, they counted the pre-selection votes, um, all 1,300, nearly 1,300 of them of members across Maranoa. Um, I, I actually 
didn't slept like a baby, didn't even think about it. So I just reconciled in my head. I'd given it a red hot crack. I'd done all I could. And if I wasn't good enough, then obviously the good members of the Nationals in, in Maranar would tell me. But fortunately enough, I snuck through. And what were your key priorities at that time as you were starting out? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, I've got a, a keen sense of, of justice um, and, and I've really, you know, the thing that, that drives me is that I actually think regional Australia has been the forgotten Australians under all persuasions of politics and, and that's what, you know, drives me to be part of the Nationals is I just think we're the conscience and, and voice of regional rural Australia and it's our job to be transactional down here in Canberra and to get our fair share. And we haven't had our fair share, and, and that that really gets up my nose. Um, and that you know, that's uh, and I have conversations with liberal colleagues that you know I don't really care about because I've just got to, I've, my driving passion is to make sure we get our fair share. So it, it was about you know making sure that the amenities of life that people in capital cities get that there's some sort of quality of life that we get in our parts of the world, whether that through the physical connectivity of infrastructure, roads, decent roads to get us there, um, the digital te- uh, telecommunication connectivity, and, and it's about the healthcare, the services to say that, you know, what if something happens to you? Um, you're going to get looked after if you're living in Charleville or you're living in Chinchilla or you're living in, in Toowoomba. Um, so that's that's sort of that equality piece is something that that I'm sort of very passionate about, and it's probably the old Nat, the old agrarian socialist um, coming out in me, that's driven into me about making sure that um, you know you, we we are treated um, equitably. And what? Tell me what's special about Maranoa. What's what's great about your electorate? Um, well, the sheer scale and size of it. It's it's three times the state of Victoria, uh, seven hundred and thirty thousand square kilometres. I think I think the smallest electorate in Australia is about thirty square kilometres. So it's it's about. 97% of the Queensland New South Wales border, all the Queensland SA border, and I go halfway between a little town called Winton and a place called Hewenden, and then just come all the way in. Uh, Donut, Toowoomba, I uh, don't have Toowoomba, um, and everything in between. So the sun sets an hour later in the west of my electorate than it does in the east, and I go from the rainforest to the Simpson Desert. So um, every day you're out there. And if I ever got punted from being, you know, a cabinet minister or the leader of the Nats, um, you know what? The, the best job I've got is being the member for Maranoa. Like when I'm not in Canberra and you get to just travel um, that electorate, like every day is different, um, every day of the year, going across that landscape. But the people, um, that's when your shoulders drop when you go back to Maranoa. Um, they're not, you don't have to be defensive. Um, you'll get brought down to earth pretty quick, but you always, they're always respectful uh, and you just feel at home. And, you know, they respect the fact that they don't necessarily get to see every day. Um, and don't expect to, but when they do see you, they're grateful that you've made the effort. And so, um, yeah, it's it's the people and the landscape. I, I reckon I'm pretty fortunate. It's the most, it's the fifth biggest electorate in the country, but it's the most geographically dispersed. Like there's a town nearly every fifty hundred k's. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pubs to pull up and say good day. I grew up in a town with three and a half thousand people and three pubs. <laughs> yeah, well, it's same as my chinchilla. And what, what do you reckon special about rural communities? Uh, it's that sense of community, um, you know, and I, you know, I admire people that want to live in a capital city. I have no intention of doing that. Living on 600 square metres of dirt and a six-foot colour bond fence, if that's living, well, good luck to you. Um, but, you know, because of the size of these towns, they're big enough uh, to, to have your own privacy, but 
they're small enough to be um, a community. I mean, I, I'm growing up in Chinchilla. I mean, if I did, if I was down the main street and did something that I probably shouldn't have, um, you know, someone would pull me up and give me a clip around the ears and say, mate, I know your parents wouldn't want you doing that. And then, you know, they'd give you one and then you go home and no doubt they'd already told mum and dad you'd done something wrong. And But that was about the community looking out for one another. And, you know, you look, I was perfect another example of that in a modern-day context. I was at the Tambo um, Sheep Show the other day and, you know, there's a whole lot of young people that are coming back out there and it was just a sense of community. There was just kids running everywhere, like from two up to... 10 and there was no parents hovering around them but every parent was was watching over them uh, over each other's kids Uh, and there was just this real sense of community and freedom um, and a carefree nature that you think well that emulated what my childhood was and I think that's great and and I get the risks and threats that are in capital cities but that that sort of innocence uh, is something that I think is precious to us in regional Australia and I think it's great to see the next generation of young people, young family and, and young mums and dads trying to preserve that and I think that's our uniqueness and, and something that's very special. I think, you know, we should fiercely protect it and if anyone steps over the line, well, we should we should call them out and, and let them sit at Her Majesty's pleasure. I can relate a lot to that myself. We've moved back to regional Victoria with our six-year-old and you can go into our community and you know at an event she can run around with her friends and she's, you know, there's so many people you know, you feel so comfortable and, yeah, it's a very special thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's a, that's something I think um, I think a lot of younger people go away and get an education and then when they have kids they realise, you know what, um, and, and they start to bring kids up in a city, they go, oh, this is different to what I remember and the fact that they've come back and, and can actually live that now, I think, you know, emulate their childhood. Um, you know, the, the society evolves, but that part of society, I think, is something that we should try to protect to keep it exactly where it was when I was a kid, uh, and I'm sure where my when what my parents experienced as well. So that that's something that's really special, I think, and, and something you know I'm I'm pretty proud to be part of. And we talked before about you working in the bank, you know, dealing with farmers who were grappling with droughts and so on. Can you talk a bit about the impacts that you've seen of climate change on the region that you're from? Yeah, well, it was even after I um, left the bank to go into politics. I mean, I've only just had communities come out of, you know, a decade-long drought. You know, places, there's parts around Longreach and Barcaldon and Blackhall, um, even out the backcountry, you know, um, of Quilpie and those places, north of Quilpie and, and Jundra and that, that have still, were still in drought. So, you know, you know that's not... That's not normal, um, and that's something that they've been they've been grappling with. But you know, I think what farmers have understood, and I think as I was sort of alluding to earlier, thirty odd years, forty years ago, we found this thing called land care, and I think that was the first stepping stone of understanding the landscape. And what I learned as a bank manager um, for a farmer is that the the health of your environment is intrinsically tied to your profit and loss because you'd, you'd be sitting around the kitchen table and you'd do budgets and then you get in the Hilux and go for a run around and you go, mate, you're flogging this place. There's no way in the world your country is going to be able to return this. And so I think Landcare was the first stepping stone of farmers educating farmers about how if you, if you manage your landscape, 
um, and, and make it healthy, then you actually get better profits. Uh, and I think that that took some time and took time for my parents and my, and my obviously my grandparents never had that because we just had traditional ways probably passed down from what they did in England that didn't work here. And, you know, so these are the sort of things that we've, I think we should be proud of that we've moved and we've understood that, that this is happening. And But it still hasn't meant that we haven't had the impacts that, that we've seen with drought and floods, um, and, you know, when you look up north of cyclones. So, you know, I saw that as a bank manager and I saw, saw that as as um, the ag minister and drought minister, that you, you could see that um, those impacts. And, you know, I would have said, in all honesty, most of my farmers, and I've had, I've had 60-year-old, 70-year-old farmers come to me and say, mate, this is real, we're copping it. And then, so there's no, it's not about the if, it's just the how and what we do. Um, I think I think that's where the debate has moved because they've experienced it. I mean, some of the smart guys I've even had said to me, you know, that they're in Broadacre, they'll, you know, they're, they're on 600 mil, millimetre rainfall country. They're now, they're now doing budgets on 450 to make sure that, they can still make a dollar, and their business models are, are predicated on that. Such is, so that's the that's the financial reality because it comes back to that, really, isn't it? I mean, that's what makes the world go round is dollars. So if you don't make money, you, you know, no one's going to come and come and help you. That's our way. You no one's owed a living. So people are seeing that, they're experiencing that. I saw it as a bank. I saw it as a member, and I saw it as a minister. And how do you think we should be tackling the issue of climate change and what opportunities do you see for agriculture within that? Well, one of the, one of the big things that, that I wanted to leave when I was agriculture minister was a legacy, and the one thing that I hope is the one legacy piece of all of them I hope survives is the biodiversity stewardship program. I think governments should be looking towards the carrot approach, and that's why the stewardship program was my, well, from what I learned, of sitting around farmers' kitchen tables while they understand that there wasn't a, a discussion around the if um, this was happening, it's the how we deal with it. And they the how meant that they didn't want to have to, to bear the cost again directly financially and obviously indirectly in terms of their yields. But the, in the indirectly piece, they wanted to make sure, I, I think, if you give them the opportunity to manage their landscape. And from what we've learned for 30, 40 years and building on the science, the new new research that's coming around managing landscape, the opportunity is there for them to participate. So this isn't just, you know, the rest of the world can, is only paying on carbon abatement. We have created um, a model whereby we can measure improvement in biodiversity, and that should be – we should be far more sophisticated than just a, an arbitrary uh, model of just trying to abate carbon. It should actually have an environmental outcome as well. And I saw the perverse environmental outcomes with carbon farming, particularly in that western Mulga country where we just had these carpet baggers come out there, buy up large, you know, 90,000 acres for 10, 20 bucks an acre and walk away – and got paid for the carbon abatement, but the pests and weeds and the management of the landscape actually went backwards. There was a perverse environmental outcome despite the abatement of carbon, and that they should be intrinsically tied. And so that's one of the things that I hope endures as my legacy. And, you know, everyone bags the gnats, um, but it was the nationals that came up with this model. And, and I'm really, I really hope this new government doesn't get rid of it. I, I think we've all now got a, an opportunity that the taxpayer doesn't have to pay for this. This is where I think the, the real emphasis needs to come on our, on our big ASX 200 companies. There's ESG for all these companies now, and they report them every annual conference 
about what they've done and how they do it. And we should be at those meetings and saying, why haven't you been part of the biodiversity stewardship program? Why aren't you abating your carbon with a halo credit around improvement in biodiversity and buying that in the market off the farmer rather than going and buying an acre of the Amazon? You can't validate. And this is the sort of stuff that I think farmers, if, if they are part of the solution and rewarded, then they'll do more than their heavy lifting. And I think it's important on governments not to make them the victims and to pay the bill, but to give them the opportunity to, to share in it because they were the victims. And this was about me squaring the ledger. And I think if we do that, the opportunities for agriculture to be part of this whole solution is enormous, is absolutely enormous. So, um, But it shouldn't be just about abating carbon. That's my, my message. It should also be about improvement in the environment as well. That's the smart that's the smart way to do it, and we're the ones that have, have actually changed the rules on that, and we should be bloody proud of it as Australians. And we were talking before we came on the podcast about the sustainable farms, like ANU project around farm dams. Are you able to talk a bit about what you like about that and what that offers for farmers? Yeah, this is really cool stuff. Um, David Lindemeyer from ANU, they were the ones I went to about the biodiversity stewardship. So I got them onto the, I wanted them to go and design what my idea was, and they did it to the T. Uh, David and particularly Andrew McIntosh did an outstanding job. Like I, I had a vision and they just put it into practice and literally did it in no time flat. But David also gave this concept to me around how not only can abate carbon in dams and how, how much carbon they actually emit is quite surprising, but how you can actually improve your yield of, of your cattle. And it's simply about understanding how water flows into the dams and it's pretty simple model. You, you fence off three sides of your dam, you have controlled traffic in for your watering and you gravel that um, and outside that, you plant native grasses and and species trees. And so, obviously, when it rains, all the, the water runs in, uh, but the grass and the, and the trees and the shrubs filtrate the, the feces and the, and the urine um, so that the water that's running in is a better quality and the controlled traffic um, going in on the gravel, just drinking and then walking away, protects all the all the grasses and, and is planted around the banks of the dam, so that keep that filtrates the water. So the water quality goes up, um, and so this is not even forgetting about carbon abatement. Your water quality goes up, and his initial trials in southern uh, New South Wales showed that they were getting increased yields on cattle somewhere between seven and twelve percent. Uh, and in Queensland, where he wants to continue to do these trials, um, you could probably get over 20%. In the US, they're getting over 20%. But you can also, and, and don't hold me to this, but I thought it was around 10 million tonnes of carbon abatement around, from the 1.7 million dams that we've got around the country. But it pays itself back in two years. And so I got ANU $5 million to do that initial bit of work and unfortunately not in government now to cut another cheque to get let David finish this off. But organisations like MLA should just grab this because if a cocky can pay this back in two years without even thinking about the carbon abatement and what that might fit into a, a, a trading scheme, you know, that, that's that's exciting stuff for, for the cattle industry and the sheep industry, goat industry, um, that you can actually get that yield by just using this thing called science and common sense and putting them together um, and then letting the farmer get on with it and, and, and you know, it's just that's just simple stuff and the simplicity of it because i'm not 
overly educated just blew my hair back and you know I'm a big believer in that I think David's done an outstanding job and, and I just encourage anyone to get on their site um, and and if you're if you are a beef producer get into MLA and tell them they should be funding the last balance of this you sit across two worlds you're in you're in Parliament House today you're in Canberra you've also got this amazing enormous electorate in rural Queensland what do you say to the folks who are in regional areas that feel disillusioned with politics that don't necessarily see it as the space for them or that will can make the changes they want to see what do you say to them you just got to be honest with them and I think um, you know there's I think society unfairly in some ways but fairly in others um, have just you know, basically put down politicians and, and, and some of us deserve that and some that have come before us have done that. And, and it is it is beholden on all of us to try and uphold a better standard here. What, what you see in question time, I've got to say, is a lot of theatre. It's not actually how we operate. Over 90% of what comes through that chamber 20 metres down the, the hall from me, and we all agree on it's the five ten percent And, in fact, many of, many of those on the other side I got on very well with um, and, and there are boundaries that we don't cross, but we travel the country together. And I've got to say, no matter their political persuasion, everyone's here for the right reason. Everyone's here to try and make your life better. We've got to be able to articulate that better and get them engaged about what we're trying to do. And, and that's about um, trying to do politics better. Um, and, and that's sometimes difficult when you're passionate about a point of view you're trying to get, get through. But it's also about how we're honest with the Australian people about why we do things um, and try to explain to them. I mean, uh, I was one in the Nationals when we had a pretty big conversation about signing up to Net Zero. I, I supported it. I had an honest conversation with my electorate. I've got four coal-fired power stations. I've got the biggest reserve of developed coal seam gas in the country. And I explained to them that, um, you know, we can transition and protect these industries with technology um, and, and there'll be new technologies that will come along that can replace these jobs if we're honest and open and transparent about how we do it, like carbon capture storage. I'm a believer in that. Um, whether there's new technologies um, in the energy space or empowering farmers to reduce our emissions, that we should we should back ourselves. And so I was honest with with them and when I when I signed up to it, uh, I got four electorate officers, 109,000 electors. I had 14 phone calls of people calling me out um, saying I'd sold them out because um, I explained to them why I did it. And I think that's what politicians are going to get back to is the why, is why we are doing this and, and, it, and that's, that's really our job and we've got to do that better. Um, and not be afraid to do it. And, you know, so I, I survived the last election. So uh, that's that's a good thing for me. By popular demand, you can lose your job in this in this gig. So, um, But you've got to be honest and, and just explain the why and, and take people through particularly those more contentious issues about why and how. And, and, and as I say, the, the, the debate isn't about if, it's just about how now. And, and I think that's an important step that we should continue to take. And, and so long as farmers are at the centre of it in the opportunity, not in terms of being penalised, while I'm the leader of the Nats, I'll be very, very supportive of that and any, any government policy that comes forward that supports farmers to be part of the solution financially because we've borne the costs 
uh, and not saying that it wasn't worth it, but you should be compensated, you should be paid for that, and we weren't. And so now's the opportunity to get that right. And you've not only, well, you've survived the last election and you're now leader of the Nationals. Can you tell me what your vision is for regional Australia? Well, you know, one of the first things and foremost is, um, I've, I've, as I said, I've never lived in a capital city, but one of the things about the injustice that of living in regional Australia that really gets up my nose is the fact that we've lost generations of young people out of regional rural Australia because of the lack of opportunity that's there um, and not getting our fair share. And, and that's the legacy I want to leave and I want my party to leave is that our young people don't need to leave. <clears throat> they can stay in regional rural Australia and they can now. They can they can do a university degree in Dirrambandi. Um, I've got a young lady in Dirrambandi who's doing a nursing degree at a country university centre in a town of 800 people at, a, at one of these centres. Um, because we provide the opportunity. It's about making sure that we don't need our best and brightest to leave. It's time to bring them home. But it's not just government's responsibility to do that. It's also each and every one of us. And, you know, because I wasn't academically gifted, Dad just said, mate, um, you can't come back on the land. It's too hard. Um, you know, we, we've got to talk differently about ourselves. It's not just me that needs to talk differently about regional Australia and the opportunities and what we're doing out there. It's each and every one of us. You actually have more currency than me. I'm a I'm a nat from Western Queensland. You know, I'm a politician. No one's listening to me, but they're but they're listening to you. You're the ones that have currency. But we've got to make sure that our message is clear. The opportunities that are here are clear to not just those the young people that are here. That we talk them up about staying and being part of that unique community that we've that we are now custodians of that are protecting, you know, in bringing families up. They not only stay, but we bring new people in that want to do that. And that's that's the legacy you get to do in this job. And you can't overcomplicate it. It's not about, you know, yeah, you could put a road or a bridge or whatever. Those that's just that's just business as usual. Your legacy is is how you, you shift the dial in making sure the opportunity's there for not one young other person to leave unless they actually really want to. It, but the opportunities are there for them to stay if they want to, and that's that's the that's where I want the nationals to make sure when we're in coalition with the liberals that if they don't give us that and, and the tools to do that, then we'll have a conversation about whether we're there. But if we're true to those principles, we're true to the people we represent, then you know what we're going to be better for it, and the legacy of the nationals will be one um, that. No one may thank us for them, we don't really care, but it'll be that the facts that our towns, our regional communities are still strong, not only in population, but in the in but in our lifestyle. That that the uniqueness of protecting one another and being part of a unique community is something that I think is our responsibility to be protective of down oh, here. I reckon that's a great note to wrap it up on, David. So thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to Over the Fence and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved with Farmers for Climate Action, you can visit the website at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Otherwise, connect with us on social media. 